It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Brian Kilmeade. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, April 18th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. More and more medical professionals are starting to worry about long COVID, the after effects of the virus experienced by some. The federal government is starting to study it as thousands of people struggle in some cases with debilitating symptoms. This is ferocious. I mean, I, I, I think this is probably more long COVID in this situation, probably worse than anything we've seen. I'm Lisa Brady. Car shopping has become a race with demand far outpacing a very limited supply. If you're going in to buy a car, you don't have a lot of leverage these days, right? Because if you're not willing to pay at least the suggested retail price, they think, just like the housing market, that they're going to be able to find somebody, the next customer who comes in, who is willing to pay more. And I'm Rabbi Sam Bregman. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. As mysterious as COVID once was, and its origin story still is, there's another mysterious aspect to the virus, and that is those who suffer from long COVID. The American Medical Association says anywhere from 10 to 30 percent of those who got COVID may experience strange symptoms that last well beyond recovering from the virus itself. Brain fog is is the term that everybody uses, and it's the most accurate. It's more or less the feeling that you have the first 30 seconds that you wake up and you haven't really uh, grasped life yet. Uh, that's how I feel probably about eight to 10 hours a day. Chris Belcott lives and works in New Jersey. He says he got COVID in late 2020 and that it was a pretty mild case. But by February of 2021, he started to experience these symptoms. There were conversations that I, were, I was having that people were just telling me time and time again that I, I was repeating myself, even in conversation like we're having now, there's a there's a chance I'm going to repeat myself. Aside from the brain fog, he said he's experienced anxiety for the first time. He said he started seeing doctors and eventually wound up in a neurologist's office. Velcott says while doctors initially said he was probably just in a pandemic-related funk, he's now being taken seriously. This has affected millions of people worldwide, and especially in America. We do need a little bit of hope that, that we could find Um, some kind of source of relief. In many long COVID forums and online discussions, people describe similar symptoms, brain fog, fatigue, even heart-related issues, palpitations, and shortness of breath. Earlier this month, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra acknowledged, Long COVID is real, and there is still so much we don't know about it. Becerra said Health and Human Services will lead a government-wide response to long COVID. We're launching the first ever interagency national research agenda on long COVID a national research action plan. But treating long COVID is presenting a whole new set of challenges, and healthcare providers worry it could impact the healthcare system for a while. It's tip of the iceberg right now, Jessica, and I, I actually would blame all of the undue attacks and criticisms and scrutiny on vaccines because they missed the ele- people that did that missed the elephant in the room, which is COVID itself. Dr. Mark Siegel is a professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center and a Fox News contributor. You know, vaccine side effects are minimal compared to what the risk of COVID itself is. You might imagine why. If you see an actual virus versus a tiny protein that the virus makes, you're going to get a much more robust reaction, especially in a disease that has so much inflammation associated with it, especially if your immune system is a virgin, if you will. 
I, I have, I'm always concerned with pandemic viruses causing more long-term side effects because your immune system isn't used to seeing it from a related virus. Now, SARS-CoV-2 is already well known for what it does. It sets off inflammatory alarms all over the body, even in organs that it doesn't invade. I mean, it invades the pancreas and the pancreas, it damages beta cells, which make insulin. And we're seeing a robust increase in diabetes. That's part of long COVID. And that actually was just shown in a big VA study in 180,000 people. So that's one. The brain, I just mentioned, it sets off inflammatory alarms, even though it doesn't go to the brain. And those those inflammations lead to cognitive problems, ADHD, as you just said, problems concentrating. There's even been evidence of some changes to the brain itself, including white matter changes. And the white matter of the brain, which I call the covering of the wire, if you will, the, the insulation right. of the brain, that happens with MS. And I'm not saying this is MS, but we're seeing MS-like symptoms. Huh. In some patients, we're seeing peripheral neuropathies, peripheral nerves. So it's it's the whole gamut. That's just the brain and the pancreas I'm talking about. Right. We're also we're, the changes in the lungs are much more well known. You get damage to the lungs, scarring from the lungs, shortness of breath. We have clinics that are devoted just to long COVID lung symptoms. There's tachycardia problems with the heart, arrhythmias with the heart. So much excess concern about myocarditis from the vaccine when the myocarditis that you get from COVID is a hundred times greater. Interesting. We talk, So we talked to Chris Belcott of New Jersey. He has long COVID. He's struggling with it. He said his brain fog symptoms got worse after he got vaccinated, um, to your point about inflammation. Um, is that something that is on the radar or is that maybe a, a one-off or we don't know? I think he's an outlier with all due respect. And, and you know, I, I could be wrong about this. One of the problems with the pandemic is nobody says those magic words. I could be wrong about this. <laughs> but, but, that, but, but data that's emerging looks the opposite. It looks like vaccines not only protect you against long COVID occurring if you have breakthrough infections or immune evasion, as we call it, but also it, it may be that vaccinations, even a treatment for long COVID to some extent. I've had a multitude of patients say, I have long COVID, but I got better after the vaccine, not worse. Is is this unusual for a, a respiratory disease to cause longer lasting problems? And I'm, I'm asking in the context of like, I know somebody who got bronchitis more than a few years ago now, a non-smoker. She says she still hasn't ever felt the same in terms of like taking a deep breath or exercising. No, for, no fatigue, but she's now more prone to bronchitis. Like she gets, when she gets sick, she gets a, a cough and she gets bronchitis like way more often than she ever did previously. How, how rare is it for the effects of a disease, not COVID, to linger in new forms for a longer period of time? Take a step back. There's something called a post-viral syndrome. And we believe chronic fatigue syndrome is directly due to that, to virus, to post-viral. There's now increasing evidence, and you probably have seen this, that multiple sclerosis itself is a sequelae in many cases from the EBV virus or mono. And so what happens in many cases is you have a virus, you get a post-viral syndrome, you make antibodies against yourself, and that leads to a whole other disease such as chronic fatigue, such as MS. Now, what a lot of virologists are saying is that long COVID has woken up the world to that issue that I just said, that there's a lot of post-viral etiologies out there that are underappreciated. At the same time, I want to reiterate what I said a few minutes ago. I think pandemic strains are worse. 
I absolutely, for a fact, know this occurred in 1918. I talked to John Barry about this, who wrote the definitive book on 1918 flu, and there was a ton of post-1918 uh, flu symptoms, very similar to what we're seeing with COVID. In fact, Woodrow Wilson suffered from it. So, wow. you know, it, 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 very common in pandemic viruses. This is ferocious. I mean, I, I, I think this is probably more, long COVID in this situation, probably worse than anything we've seen. Wow. Um, in terms of treatment, because we don't really necessarily understand long COVID yet, is it, is treatment sort of like, okay, you've got brain fog, so maybe we'll give you this medication and you've got heart, heart symptoms. So we'll have to treat you based on the heart symptoms. Like, do you really have to go by how each individual is experiencing long COVID in terms of treatment? Yeah. What you have to do right now is go organ system by organ system. If you're developing diabetes, we have to get you to lose weight. If you're developing shortness of breath or lung damage, we need you in pulmonary rehab. If you develop some kind of heart issue, you need to be monitored carefully by your cardiologist. If you develop brain fog, as you hinted earlier, you might benefit from an ADHD drug, a stimulant. So it, it really depends on which system is involved. And we're still too early in the game to know how long all of this lasts. Luckily, I have seen patients improve over time. I think the majority of patients improve over time. The American Medical Association is estimating that like anywhere from 10 to 30 percent of those who had COVID are suffering with long COVID symptoms. And obviously, that's a lot of people. What kind of strain might this put on the broader healthcare system and for how long? There's going to be two pandemics coming out of this pandemic. One is a mental health pandemic, which may not be directly related to COVID, but all the damage of the restrictions we put in place unthinkingly. And the other is what you just said, which is long COVID disability. I'm very, very concerned about that. And I think that, that that's something that we're underappreciating and, and will be a problem for years to come. Doctor, does, does long COVID make you more suspicious, less suspicious or neutral regarding COVID's origin story? Like how COVID came to be that so many people suffer from long COVID? Does it give us any indication about the virus itself? My thinking has evolved on this in the following way. You know, as you probably know, I've talked to Robert Redfield a lot about this. He thinks that this virus skyrocketing overnight out of nowhere and suddenly going so easily human to human makes it very suspicious that it was made in a lab or somehow monkeyed around within a lab, not bioengineered, but was, you know, maybe serial passage through a humanized mouse. That's one theory. And I think some some experts in transfer, you know, zoonotic transfer, which means how does, a, how does a virus start in a bat and end up in a human, have the same concerns about that. And that, all, that speaks to whether we will see a lot more variants coming forward. Hmm. There's also the issue you're bringing up is where do virus come from that causes so much inflammation? But that's partly answered by the fact that bat viruses tend to do that, whether it's rabies or Nipah virus or coronavirus, they, they tend to be known for their inflammation. The only thing that's come out in the past year or so that speaks against lab origin, and I think it's still big time on the table, is that we are discovering more viruses like this in the area. In other words, there's a lot more, a lot more coronaviruses floating around uh, that part of China than we realized, or other parts of China that are then brought to that part of China. There's a lot of studying of coronaviruses that was going on. There's a lot of ways this could have happened. And, and I think natural origin is still a possibility, too. 
does this seem to impact a specific group of people more? Like I was reading that people who engage in high intensity exercise may be more susceptible. I, I know there's a bunch of different things out there that people are floating. Is there any truth to any theory about one group being more susceptible to long COVID than another? There's a theory about a more, if you're prone to a more robust immune response, that there's a genetic predisposition. All of this is under study. What, what CDC Director Walensky told me is she thinks that it correlates with how severe a case of COVID you get. So if you have a more severe case of COVID, you're more likely to get a long COVID. But that's exactly what we're trying to figure out. What is it that triggers it? And in knowing it, what triggers it, we might be better equipped to treat it. Finally, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra was talking um, earlier this month about studying it with a new council, um, which would include like DOD, Labor Department, the VA. How at that level do you study long COVID? I mean, obviously, you'd want to examine the people who have it. But is it a, is it really like about data compilation to find out like who has it, what their demographics are, the most common symptoms and sort of going from there? Is that is that sort of data what we need at this point? This is what's been lacking throughout the pandemic is a cross-sectional analysis of things. You know, like what, what did it cost the economy to shut down those businesses, those restaurants, those schools? None of that was looked at. So I'm, I'm applauding anything that becomes more digitalized, more real, more real-time data, more across going across different areas that you wouldn't ordinarily think would be involved. Health is health. Economics is economics, but we actually need to look at all of these things at once. The only caution here is, of course, what everybody's always worried about is patient privacy. I, I, I want compilation of data, but I don't want people to feel like they're being spied on. Dr. Mark Siegel, thank you, as always, for your time and your insight. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. To, great to be on with you, Jessica. Have a great day. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. This is Rabbi Sam Bregman with your Fox News commentary coming up. Car dealerships across the country have a shared problem. Not enough inventory. We normally would have 125 new vehicles on our lot. We have about 50. John Bodman, product specialist at a Volvo dealer in Fort Myers, Florida, blames the ongoing computer chip shortage. But the supply crunch has evolved and a fix isn't right around the corner. Stephen Center is the chief operating officer of Kia USA. We have uh, no inventory now and usually the uh, whole industry has two months supply. That's two twelfths and we're producing two twelfths less. So if you fixed it today, it would take a year to get caught up. That doesn't account for the excess demand. So I think it's going to be a year, could be a year and a half. And he says he doesn't think prices will change very quickly. So how bad is it for buyers? Really bad. You have to be very open-minded is a polite way to put it, I think. Fox Business's Grady Trimble. Because if you go in looking for a specific model with specific finishes and have a specific vehicle that you really, really want, that specific vehicle might not be available on the lot. And if you place an order for it, you might have to wait up to six to 12 months for exactly what you're looking for. And then on top of the lack of availability, it's the price issue, right? So the average transaction price right now is 
almost $46,000 for a new vehicle. And that is a combination, of course, of luxury vehicles, but also just regular starter vehicles, cars that used to be relatively affordable to middle-class families that are sort of getting out of reach to them. And from the automaker's perspective, it's good that demand is through the roof right now. Obviously, the supply issues are a challenge for them and cause problems and sales have fallen as a result. But they are aware that this is eating away at at availability of vehicles to the middle class in terms of pricing. Wow. Um, There's more than one issue in play here, obviously. Some is still pandemic driven with factory and port disruptions overseas, correct? It is. Yeah. So obviously when the automakers shut down, they weren't making any cars. And then suddenly when things open back up, just like we've seen with the housing market, people were happy to spend again because they weren't spending money in other ways. And so they were buying cars. A lot of people didn't have cars before the pandemic and they don't really feel comfortable on public transit or they just don't want to use it. And so they're buying cars. You might have noticed traffic patterns changing. That might not be because there are more people going into the office. It's probably just fewer people, but more of them driving. And then on top of that, the chip shortage has been a huge problem. And the New York Auto Show is this week. So we were kind of catching up with executives there and asking them what the problems are. And it used to be chip shortage, chip shortage. That's all they could focus on and talk about. But now it's more broadly the supply chain, not just chips that they have a shortage of, but just about every product that they're looking for and prices of just about every metal. So aluminum for the bodies of the vehicles, palladium, which goes into catalytic converters and the chips themselves, those prices have skyrocketed as well. And they're just less available because every automaker is fighting for the same supply of those products. Yeah. And I'm not sure that it has been common knowledge, at least not up to this point, how many different metals are involved in making cars and how not only how they're used, but where they come from. And that brings us to Ukraine, right? So the industry was already dealing with enough with the surge in demand, chip shortage, production shutdowns as a result of the supply chain issues. And now that you have the conflict in Ukraine, I mentioned palladium, a lot of that does come from Ukraine. And so we haven't seen that impact prices yet. But the kind of warning from the experts is that if this is a prolonged war, that's when you could see it hit the prices of the vehicles themselves. That was kind of my next question is, how are the automakers coping? Because I know you said the average price for a vehicle is higher now, but I think I saw that one of the metals had gone up like 60% Mm -hmm. in price. Right, probably aluminum that you saw. That's happening across the board with commodities. You know, it's not just metals. It's also lumber and corn and soybeans and what have you. And for now, I guess dealing with it the best way they can, which is to try to supply it from as many of their different suppliers as possible. So typically they have, you know, tier one suppliers who are the main ones that they deal with, but they might be going deeper into their list of suppliers, tier two, tier three, to try to get whatever is available. So it's a really tough situation for the consumer. It's tough for the automakers, but at the same time, demand is through the roof. So they're pleased with that. Because you figure they'll kind of land on their feet, so to speak, no matter how this all plays out, because they'll be at that point pent up demand for people who couldn't get cars. Um, Anecdotally, I've heard that 
kind of like with housing, with like bidding wars, people are having to pay over the manufacturer suggested retail price, which is what usually you're talking the dealer down from. Right. Um, the automakers have to be aware of that current climate for their buyers. They are. And some of the automakers have sent letters to the dealers and said, hey, you know, we we put this suggested retail price in place because we think this is how much the car should sell for. Please don't go above that because it makes us look bad, too. Others have said, kind of taken a, a dealership by dealership approach and sort of, in a way, it's markets playing out, right? Supply and demand. So if you have a customer who's willing to pay X amount over the MSRP, then they're letting the dealerships do that. It's just extremely unusual. At the auto show, we talked to the chief operating officer of Kia, a U.S. branch of Kia, and he said it's not abnormal for that to happen when a new model comes out and there's excitement and buzz around a new model, like electric vehicles, for example. But this is happening every day across every vehicle model. And in some cases, it's 8 to 10% above MSRP for, for some of the, the vehicles. Others, you're paying right around MSRP, maybe 1% less. But if you're going in to buy a car, you don't have a lot of leverage these days, right? Because if you're not willing to pay at least the suggested retail price or even more, they think, just like the housing market, that they're going to be able to find somebody, the next customer who comes in, who is willing to pay more. And this is at a time when the used car market was already tight, before all of this happened, right? So are there still used cars around or is that a lost cause now? Inventory is extremely tight, just like it is with new cars. And the inflation of prices is an even bigger problem for used vehicles, problem from the consumer's perspective. It's good if you're selling your used car and you don't need to buy another one at a higher rate. I believe it's around 35% for a used vehicle right now. That's the increase from a year ago. I mean, that's insane. Jump. Yeah. I mean, it's thousands and thousands of dollars. And there are stories of people selling a car for more than they bought it for. You know, the old joke about autos is that you, the minute you drive it off the lot, you lose money. And that's not necessarily the case right now because of the way the used market is. And that's also driven by supply and demand. There's not as much uh, supply of used vehicles. People aren't trading them in as much because they know to buy a new one, it's going to cost them a lot. So they're hanging on to what they have. Wow. I mean, are used cars even worth it at this point in this current climate since their prices have gone? Are that's they still a thing, good value? That's the thing with vehicles is you, you you might need it. A lot of people need their car. And, you know, we're not, again, talking about luxury vehicles here. We're talking about the ones that get people from point A to point B, whether it's their work or visiting family and driving around town, going to get groceries, just you know, basic driving. You need a vehicle for that in most U.S. cities. And so, Value is not just dollars, right? It's also the what you get out of it. And so some people need to pay more for a vehicle, whether it means they're, the prices are going to be a lot more than they might be used to. What is all of this doing for the market or the demand or the outlook for the hybrids and electric vehicles? Because for a lot of people, those have still been too expensive from the beginning. Right. It's interesting because when you look at sales numbers for the first three months of 2022, the major U.S. automakers selling conventional combustion engine vehicles were down between 10, 20 percent. 
But when you look at electric vehicle sales, Tesla specifically, I think their sales were up something like 250%. And that's because gas prices are so high, people are interested in electric vehicles right now. Affordability is still an issue, though. You look at the average transaction price we talked about for your average conventional vehicle, it's around 45 grand, 46 grand. For an electric vehicle, it's around 65, 66 grand. There are lower priced models coming onto the market and in some cases already on the market, but certainly price is a huge barrier for people who are looking to buy an electric vehicle. And then a lot of people still have range anxiety is what they call it is, uh, you know, is 220 miles or 300 miles on a single charge going to be enough for me? But interest is as high as it's ever been because of the high gas prices right now, interest in electric vehicles. Maybe a sign of the times that the the returning after two years, New York International Auto Show has that test track where people can take a ride in an EV. Yeah, it's exciting. I, I cover auto, so I get to try out a lot of these vehicles before they're available. But the average person in most cases still hasn't driven an electric vehicle. They might know somebody who has a Tesla or the Mustang Mach-E or uh, a Nissan Leaf, but they haven't driven it themselves. And so what's really cool about electric vehicles, all of the uh, issues I explained before aside is that there's no, it doesn't have to shift gears. There's no lag time between when you hit the gas and when the car takes off. So a lot of the automakers as they transition to electric, their uh, sort of messaging is that once we get people behind the wheel of an electric vehicle, they get it. And that's exactly what they're trying to do at the New York Auto Show. I uh, covered Chicago a month or two ago. Same situation. And I do think it changes people's perspective once they've tried it out. But you've still got the charging infrastructure issue. You know, you can't just charge like you fill up at a gas station. You know, they're not ubiquitous yet. And the price, like we talked about. Mm -hmm. And and good luck finding anything right now anyway. (laughs) Uh, Fox Business's Grady Trimble, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday, it's tax day for most Americans. Usually on the 15th, it was pushed back this year because Emancipation Day was celebrated Friday in the nation's capital, giving taxpayers an extra weekend to get their paperwork in order. Officials with the IRS recommending filing electronically to ensure accurate returns and faster refunds. Monday also sees an extension of the holiday weekend with the White House hosting the annual egg roll. Friday is Earth Day, which organizers say allows people around the world to focus on climate and ways to help restore the planet's natural resources for generations to come. Events are planned worldwide, focusing on clean energy and fighting deforestation, with many groups spending time planting trees and picking up litter. Saturday, a SpaceX Falcon rocket is scheduled to launch a Crew Dragon spacecraft with four astronauts set for a six-month mission on the International Space Station. It will be the seventh launch of astronauts by SpaceX. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
It's time for your Fox News commentary. Rabbi Sam Bregman. What's on your mind? For Jews around the world, the eight-day holiday of Passover began this past Friday night with an atmosphere that has greatly improved over recent years. Over the last two years, like people of all faiths, Jews were unable to fully assemble, worship, and pray together over Passover as one body of believers. With the mass mandates and social distancing now behind us, Passover is back on track for virtually everyone worldwide. With large gatherings mirroring the celebration of years prior, overflowing with extended family as well as friends. Amidst this joyful atmosphere, it's appropriate to turn inward and focus on the spiritual lessons of this holiday. In the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible, we find a commandment to, quote, Remember the day of your departure from the land of Egypt all the days of your life. Many of the classic Jewish sages have asked, what is the purpose of remembering the Exodus on a daily basis? One might think that once one is aware of the basic contours of the story, we wouldn't stand to gain anything by repeating the same story again and again. In response, the ancient rabbis explain that, correct, the point to be driven home daily is not the basic narrative of Moses, Pharaoh, and the plagues. Rather, it is to recall that a nation had once been on the lowest level of spiritual impurity, but nevertheless was still deemed worthy of being redeemed by our Creator. As such, we should always remember that no matter how terribly any of us have fallen, whether personally, communally, or even as a nation, there is always a way up. There will forever be a way home to fulfill our God-given missions, maximize our vast potentials, and chart a fresh course in life. And this, this indeed, is a lesson worth remembering and repeating on a daily basis. With all my heart, I join Jewish leaders worldwide in wishing everyone a happy Passover and extend my wish that everyone should experience a healthy, prosperous, and meaningful rest of the year. I'm Rabbi Sam Bregman. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.